0: Hey y'all! Welcome to Queers at the End of the World Season 2. We are so excited to be back with you. I wanted to give a couple of quick heads up before we get going. The first one is a note about sound. We had some trouble with Nat's mic when we were recording for this episode, but we also had a really fantastic conversation. So I did my best with the sound. It is far from perfect. But we have fixed the problem. Future episodes should be just a lovely and delicious sonic experience. The second thing I wanted to mention is a bit of a content warning. We do talk about child abuse and interpersonal abuse later on in this episode, so that's mostly in the second half, um, in case that is helpful for you to know. All right, let's get started. Quicksand is like velociraptors. It can't
1: get you if you don't move. If you ever ended up in quicksand, I will definitely try to pull you out of there. Oh, thanks, buddy yeah likewise (laughs) yeah throw me a vine bro
0: (laughs) this is queers at the end of the world the podcast where we live on space potatoes grown in the excrement of our dear departed friends i'm your host nina and i'm your host matt So today we're bringing you episode one of our second season of Queers at the End of the World. We've been thinking and talking and trading books and stories and ideas all summer and autumn long. And I feel like our first season was really thinking about like dystopia and survivalist ideas. And I think, you know, some of that came out of like your own history with prepping um, and with having survivalist parents.
1: Yeah, that was really present for me, especially when lockdown happened. And we were in a scenario that felt evocative of sort of hunkering down in the midst of an actual apocalypse. And it was kind of the beginning of starting to think in that frame alongside a bunch of other people, instead of feeling like it's this private personal history that I felt a little ashamed of or fraught about yeah, there was a there was a lot to unpack there. And I, I think for both of us, um, for you too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, coming into this moment, I mean, one of the major things that I've been thinking about heading into season two, after that conversation is like, COVID is still going on. Like, mm-hmm. this sucks so much. <laughs> like, it's been going on for, you know, almost two years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've virtually lost track. And while there's been, for sure, lots of change, the thing that really started to beat at the back of my head is this idea of escape and escape as like, both like a theme in science fiction and dystopias and utopias and the kinds of books we read, but also as like something that science fiction and fantasy and dystopian literature is often described as escapist. So mm. something, something this kind of media that we talk about does is like help people escape. And I think to some extent, when we're talking about and describing what the first season of this podcast did, like there's a level of escape in, in that for both of us. Like escaping from lockdown into this space of connection and friendship and community.
1: Yeah, I think for me, part of it was a pleasant imagining that I might term escapist if you want to dig in on that word and start to to open it up.
0: So that's where we kind of landed is on this idea of escape. And we wanted to do our first episode not so much on like one single text but on just the whole idea of escape and what we're bringing to it in terms of our own investments and then also a couple of shorter texts that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do a whole episode on but that are really like potent in terms of forming the ideas about escape that I think Nat and I are both bringing to the conversation. So... For you, would you say not beyond like just the sort of basic generic trope of escape in science fiction and like blasting off from planet Earth or whatever? Um, what are some of the things that you're excited to think about in terms of the idea of escape this season?
1: Well, I mean, I think a little bit about some of the metaverse stuff that's been happening in popular discourse with mm. now these tech industry billionaires looking to create. A reality that's actually similar to a science fiction classic by Neal Stephenson called Snow Crash, which was the original occurrence of this idea of a metaverse that you like jack into and it's a ready player one scenario. Right. (laughs) Snow Crash was like pre smartphone. So, like, You know, back in the day, people imagined that there is like a virtual reality world, but you can only like get to it by going to these special terminals or whatever. Yeah, I know. It would be so much easier to set boundaries if you had to leave your apartment and go to a terminal to get into one of those things.
0: Dude, I literally just instituted a box
1: where I put my phone. Can you open the box if you want to, though?
0: Yes, because I'm not actually good at following strict rules. (laughs) See, I will rebel against myself.
1: I have actually heard of folks who have done things like a timed safe. Fair.
0: The level of time and like, I don't know, I was having this conversation with my partner the other day about like, just sort of feeling like the cost benefit analysis of like, internet and connectivity and social media is like starting to tip for me because I feel like my interiority is getting eroded, you know? Absolutely. The moments when I used to go inward and let my mind wander, I now find myself wandering the like pre constructed rooms of Twitter and, and Instagram instead, and not really encountering myself there at all. <laughs> you know,
1: it's a Absolutely. very different experience. It's very different. The just quality of existing is different when you get in that mindset. I mean, I live in that and I always want to escape from it. I yeah. always want to be somewhere else. And I'm always really conflicted over it because as a kid, it was one of the ways that I found escape and found places to express my identity and be genderqueer and yeah. have my name be a guy's name on the internet and like yeah. just think through how I wanted to communicate who I was and play and do all of these things. But like, also it's this source of constant addiction and your experiences just daily life become instrumentalized. I despair of finding a way out of that because of how mixed in it all is with everything I do, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. And I want to explore what escape means and wanting to escape is even a legitimate impulse or if maybe there's something entitled about it.
0: I find it really, really interesting that at the same time that this sort of like metaverse idea sort of happening on Earth. There's also this like whole millionaires going to Mars and the moon
1: fiasco. (laughs) Right, like annexing the planets, as it were. I mean, we have the money, so we're going to get them first, seems like the attitude. You know, we we were reading this New York Times article about this, and there was this whole narrative around these billionaires like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, these people we see in the news – themselves having read all of this science fiction and the content of the article suggested that a lot of the science fiction that they had read and been inspired by towards narratives like the metaverse or you know getting out there and exploring that they had misinterpreted these right like
0: these are utopian narratives that are about sort of socialism that are about community that are like being responsible for each other. And then these guys are interpreting it as like this individualistic free for
1: all where it's like, I get to go have the moon. What part of the socialist message of like people taking care of each other and not owning property did people misunderstand? This is why I'm really excited to talk about science fiction this season, because, you know, the ideas at the core of this podcast are about apocalypse. And science fiction is a way of asking what happens next, I guess. Is there a way to get out? And I think that that's in part why I think of like an idea of entitlement, because Mm. asking the question, is there a way to get out feels like it comes from a a place of privilege for me. Yeah. You know, even let's go off world to get away from COVID is like a feeling. Let's go
0: to fucking Hawaii to get away from COVID and just give it to people on the
1: island. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, I think during COVID it's people who have privilege and resources being able to escape in, in various kinds of ways whether that that is from having to take risks by working a white collar job in the comfort of your cloistered home and mm-hmm. ordering groceries and ordering everything yeah but then the other thing i'm thinking too is like people who decided to leave and move somewhere that's more comfortable
0: yeah Yeah. And so much of that, like, enabled by technology, both in the sense of, like, being able to work from home, but also it's that, like, really stark division between the person who is ordering everything to arrive at their apartment and the person who has to go work side by side with a bunch of people in unsafe conditions in a factory in order to fulfill that order. Exactly. Um, And then, you know, like, there's a fucking tornado and they can't leave. Like,
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... There's a part of me personally that tends towards, I am always really worried about my own privilege and taking actions that stem from a sense of entitlement to being comfortable. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say in talking about this is I think that it's important to acknowledge and wrestle with these issues, but it's also made it hard for me to sometimes think about escape from another angle that maybe is something that's important to think about and prioritize and work for, Mm. which is the kind of ideal of the critical utopia or escape as something that as queer people, we get to fantasize about, if that makes sense.
0: I I definitely like, I feel you so much on that. I struggle a ton with it. It's like, just sort of a lack of trust in myself, I think, fundamentally, because it's like, oh, so many of my instincts are kind of honed in this white supremacist system that, like, I have this expectation of being okay. And that has benefited me my whole life. And, like, I can't stop that from happening. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, like, question my motives and, like, what I think is the right thing to do. And, you know, that is something that I, like, I'm definitely interested in exploring more as we talk about this. Like, I don't feel like I'm starting from a place of being, like, over that at all. Um But like, yeah, how do we, from a place of like recognizing that we're operating in this really complex intersectional experience of being people, have a place to stand and imagine the better future that we want?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about that in terms of white people going on vacation to Hawaii. And I remember how much you know, righteous and justified anger there was about this happening during COVID. Totally. And I think simultaneously, having internalized that feeling of rage and anger, Mm. I would carry that feeling around with me a little bit. And then, you know, one of my escapes during COVID was eating a lot of baked goods
0: Yeah, cake for the win.
1: (laughs) We went to this place that does these like high end baked goods. It's called Supermoon Bakehouse, and they make these crazy things like a cruffin, you know, that's got like malt chocolate on it. And they had it set up so everyone would wait in line, socially distance outside. They would let one group in at a time, and you would get it and leave.
0: Oh, my God. Leave it to New York to turn the pandemic into yet another reason for, like, exclusive bakery experiences. I
1: know. But, I mean, I would be there and I would be, like, walking to it and I felt this guilt and shame about going there. And I think that part of it is I would connect it with the white people going to Hawaii thing. like (laughs) Because this cruffin is Hawaii to you? Yes. uh,
0: Is that a crud muffin or a croissant muffin?
1: (laughs) It's, it's whatever it is. It's really delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Crud muffin. Yeah. So I would be there and I would be like walking to this place. I'm like, I'm such an asshole. And oh. I, I would say to my partner, like, this is embarrassing. We can't let anyone know we're doing it. <laughs> right. I
0: mean, there's so many things at play there, like, trying to control something that you don't actually have control over, like, trying to say, like, you know, if I can resist, like, any pleasure myself, I can make up for these assholes going to Hawaii or whatever. Right. And – Or, like, just this sort of anxiety, like, am I them, you know? And, I mean, obviously, it's not just white people who have those sometimes contradictory, like, motivations and emotions about how we participate in this system that is mostly murderous, you know? But, like, we're people alive and we live in it. So, like, how do we exist in it? How do we imagine escaping from it? Like, we talked so much last season about, like, the, like, corrosive power of narratives of purity, you know? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, and that yeah. like sounds
0: so much like that like that kind of like I'm gonna you know I'm impure because I'm taking pleasure in something that is being sold in this class stratified way and therefore like I'm bad <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm
1: exactly like people getting on a plane to go to an island <laughs> full of brown folks like yeah uh, I mean I don't think that we're gonna get away from that
0: no I definitely agree with you there's no way that we're getting away from that <laughs> And it really makes me think actually of like one of the pieces of media that um we wanted to bring into this conversation it seems like a good time to transition into that and we could actually play it for you on the show because it's a song which is super exciting so um are you feeling ready for that nat sure awesome then i'm gonna play part of the song which is less and ray by the band La and listeners feel free to sing along Okay, so that song was Les and Ray. Um, by the band Latigra. And before we go any further, I just want to say just a huge thank you to Kathleen Hanna, who is the front woman for Latigra and who's singing on that track. She's known for being super generous to fans. And I reached out to her to ask if we could play this song on the podcast. And she said yes. So just like enormous thanks to Kathleen Hanna for just so consistently being there for the people who listen to her music. Okay, so in the song, there's this little girl, she's nine years old, she's living in a situation where for some reason, whether it's abuse or some other kind of oppression, she needs to escape. And the song is about her neighbors, Les and Ray. And I've always thought of them as a gay couple, even though the song is not really like explicit about that. But she's listening to them play piano. She can hear it through the walls and windows of her house. And I think the implication is just that like knowing that the music is there is life-saving for her because it gives her this idea that there is some possible future for her where things are different and where she doesn't like, she doesn't have to imagine living this way for the rest of her life.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's a really different way of approaching this idea of escape, like as a source of hope, as, as something that is possible through queer community and in queer community. I feel like the sound of the song really brings that home for me too.
0: Yeah. It's this child's piano. I think it's like, it's the same instrument that she's talking about in the song of these adults playing, but it's Mm. the kid's version, you know, of that, of that sound. And I feel like it's this sort of like kid, like playing her fucking song, you know, like it's going to like make me tear up right now. And like, thinking about the the person that she can become like even though you know for kids I mean life is hard for kids they don't have any control and the fact that this kid can see that there is something else to get into is life saving and I think about that all the time as a queer adult like mm. just to sort of to just like go around sort of like living with the awareness and assumption That like being visible living your life could be what lets a kid know that they can do that too, that they can get out of the situation that they're in.
1: Mm, Yes, that's so true. I, I, I love that as, I don't know, like maybe an invocation for ways that we can live as who we are to demonstrate that this type of escape is available and possible.
0: That it makes me wonder um if there were people or entities, I guess not not everyone is people. <laughs> 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 if there were people um when you were a
1: kid who were like that for you. that's a good question. Part of the reason I paused is I was reliving the difficulty <laughs> of my of my growing up time, especially when I was closer to that age.
0: Yeah.
1: And really, I mean, people know, you know, there was mm-hmm. no one like that in my life, actually. Mm. Um, and it makes me sad to say it, but a lot of the way I tried to find escape when I was a kid was the computer and video games. I really strongly remember being a pretty young age, probably like 10 or 11, when I made my first website. (laughs) So cool. (laughs) I just remember feeling like the computer was the only good thing that existed. Mm. It was this thing that lets you talk to people. I mean, I remember thinking like there are chat rooms, in the chat rooms there are people Maybe those people will be my friends, and of course, the reality on the internet is a lot of those people are not trying to be your friend. Mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know, like it's like when I imagine the kid in the song, yeah, I guess it's interesting to me to imagine the idea that you could climb out of your house and find people like that mm. because my experience of it was very much like staying in a house and going inward if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, it does.
0: It's it's true. It's like this sort of urban, like, escape that's made possible literally by the fire <laughs> escape, like, by <laughs> the this thing that connects homes um, and by the wall, a shared wall. I It's interesting, like, to hear you kind of use the word sad to talk about the fact that, like, the internet is where you went for connection. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, my memories of the early internet, like, yeah, like, there were a lot of people there who were not obviously who they said they were. And there were a lot of people who were total creeps. But, like, did you find people on the internet when you were a kid that you were able to connect to?
1: I mean, it's hard for me to separate like the good out from the bad, because there were people like that. And I, I remember several different internet communities that I spent time in and enjoyed. But I don't know, like I it makes me remember some other things connected with that that led to creepier Creepier communications.
0: Yeah, it's true that it was like behind doors number one through eight were creepy ass communications.
1: Yes. I think one of the challenges I had as a kid is I didn't have social skills and it was really hard for me to find people to talk to and create social bonds that felt meaningful, like even though that was the only thing I ever wanted. Mm hmm. And I know that you and I have talked about, like, these different moments when you had these moments of, like, connection and, like, frisson with, like, queer elders that you encountered out in the world. Like, that was unavailable to me as a kid because with being so cloistered and the reasoning that was kind of put to being cloistered and isolated, I believed that everyone was a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I went around thinking queer people were a threat. I didn't even notice if people were queer or not because all I thought was if there's a person, they are a threat.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And then being on the internet was sort of like this way I thought like, well, maybe I can find people where I don't experience that feeling. Hmm. Um, But then one of the issues on the internet is there are people who actually are a threat. (laughs) So you have to be careful. So like- I don't know, yeah, it is sad. I mean, I like when I hear the song and think about this, I wish that I had had someone in my life like that, mm. someone I could trust,
0: yeah, yeah, do you feel like there was a time when you started to be able to think about like, oh, I don't have to like live the same life my parents do? Oh, probably when I
1: was in grad school.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not nine years old for everybody and that's fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I would describe myself as a person who kind of had a program installed in their their mind. Mm. And because you internalize values in that way, Mm -hmm. like I, I know some folks now on the internet who are sort of recovering people who were raised Christian. And I sometimes think that for people who had ideologies that were put on them as as kids, there's a way in which you can think about that ideology and say that ideology was problematic. And I recognize it when I hear it in my own mind. Mm -hmm. In our family, we didn't have an ideology. We just had everything is a threat all the time, which like... Mm -hmm. As different from being like we're Christian and this is how we behave in fact my parents would like say how stupid Christianity was right and we had a homeschooling group full of Christians and by proxy that meant that those people were also very stupid and threatening and you have to be yeah. careful around them right? right so there's like circular logic that that operates like that mm-hmm. where there were no values there's just anxiety yeah. Wow. So speaking of quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I do feel sometimes, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but I always, I love hearing about your childhood because you were able to find these alternative ways of being through adults. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, I was really lucky that way. And part of that was just, just growing up in a city where there were so many more people. And so there were chances to encounter all kinds of different folks. And then also, you know, yeah, my family was not trying to keep you away from them. In fact, my dad was like sort of, I think, suspicious from the start about me. (laughs) When I was a kid, he would just go out of his way to like tell me that this thing existed. You know, I'm like a tiny little kid. And he was just like, oh, you remember that person you met at my office? You met them and they were a woman that person has transitioned and is now going by this other name and is a man, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was like this, you know, it was like a version of transness that did not actually apply to my life because he couldn't think that (laughs) like, it wasn't really all that available for him as a straight cis guy to imagine anything other than like the cultural narrative that existed at the time, which was like, you are a man and then you become a woman. You are a woman, right? Become a man. But like, he did try to tell me about that. <laughs> like, And be like, you know, a person who's this way. Yep. So like, yeah, I was like, really, really lucky in having all of these adults around. And I think that like facilitated this sort of like world building. But it's also like, amazing and beautiful to me that like, without those facilitators, you did that too, like you went and found some.
1: That's definitely true. I mean, I think the The thing that's challenging is when you're doing it yourself, it's always porous. Mm, What do you mean by that? uh, I I don't know. Like I was thinking about one of the major decisions I made as an agent, like as a teenager, when I finally started to like reason about like who I wanted to be was I was on swim team for many years Mm -hmm. and I was really into it for the physicality, but I hated. it. Hated showing my body mm. in a bathing suit. I hated yeah. it. This is when everyone's like going through puberty. Like I'm 14, oh God, totally. you know. Totally. But like I hated it. And at some point, I decided I wanted to quit swimming and I wanted to do aikido. Mm-hmm. And that was like one of the first decisions I ever made about who I wanted to be. And it felt so good because around that time, I finally like got my hair cut in this super short cut. Mm -hmm. And I had like an Aikido gi and I went like three or four nights a week to this dojo and it was so masculine and martial and the Mm -hmm. movement was interesting and the people there mostly took me seriously, even though I was a teenager and most of the people there were adults. And that was very much a situation where I kind of put it together myself.
0: Right. You were like, I desperately need to solve these problem these I'm having and this is a yeah. way I have to be yeah. yes.
1: but I, I say it's porous because I ended up in an emotionally abusive relationship with an older man because of going to that Aikido dojo mm. by myself.
0: Mm.
1: And as this 15, 16 year old with zero sense of how to build trust or understand what trust was it like it was like this coin that flipped from like something that was like so fulfilling and meaningful to me and like letting me explore the way gender was manifesting for me at that time and identity was manifesting to all of those things were why i attracted abuse mm. so like it was porous in part i think also because Without there being like a mentor or an adult in my life who was a companion to help me like set up values, understand um, how to have an ethical compass, and kind of hold or protect the space for me, like saying like, you know, if someone's asking you this in the context of this Aikido dojo, they're violating your legitimacy here. Right. I would have never had that thought and nobody was there to help me have it or understand that that was even a thing. Right. Right. Totally. So it's hard for me to to have memories of those times because similar to what I was saying before about the internet, it's like it had that same quality of like I find these communities and Mm -hmm. then being in the community in this way where I'm exploring and making myself vulnerable to knowing myself Mm. has often seemed like a route to receiving exploitation and abuse. Mm. Sorry, that was really (laughs) – that's no. a like cliff to jump off conversationally. I don't. I don't want to end on such a, a dark note talking about this. But
0: no, I mean like it's, it's exactly like what we're gonna be talking about this season. Like how like these things are intertwined. Like trying to escape is dangerous. Trying to imagine something different and better. Like when you don't have like you're talking about these sort of like boundaries and protections that you didn't have as a kid, as you were trying to like step out and figure out who you were and that that was really dangerous for you.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of loops me back to the guilt and shame piece that we were talking about earlier in the context of whiteness. And I think guilt and shame have complex joins, like, we talk about it in terms of feeling like we need to make up for <laughs> these evils that these Hawaii visiting white people are doing. But then in a way the recrimination and rage about that is just a key to unlock this sometimes existing well of that stuff that you carry with you that maybe doesn't have a clear cause, but mm-hmm. is just part of this history that you've been living and constitutes this thing that you'd like to escape from. But then you think if I try to escape from it, I'm going to feel more of those feelings, because Mm. those are a part of me, and I'm going to encounter them wherever I go and whatever I try to do.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, we take it with us. We, We always take it with us. And like, yeah, I think as queer people, we have a lot of practice at like, sort of speculative fictions about ourselves and like what our lives could be like and having this like need and compulsion to come up with new possibilities and and test it and that sometimes can push us into really dangerous places. I mean, I think it's something that we see in a lot of science fiction and fantasy novels also is like a lot of the science fiction that we talk about is sort of trying to imagine a way out of like the existing bad situation. Mm -hmm. And, but like most science fiction is like the way out is like further colonization and abuse, right? Like these like captains running off in their spacesuits or whatever to go and like colonize the stars. And then there's science fiction that complicates that. And I know when we've been talking about this season, one of the sort of really fundamental touch points actually kind of takes us back to the very first episode of the podcast, which we did on Octavia Butler's series Parable of the Sower. Um, and Parable of the Talents. And the book that, as we've been kind of thinking about this season, that our thoughts have, like, really been kind of turning around, like, you know, <laughs> our thoughts have been orbiting, is the, like, planned third Novel in that series that never got written. So it's like, it's this book that never happened, which was going to be called Parable of the Trickster. Just to give you like a, a tiny bit of context, if you remember from Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, that story kind of very broadly put is about a group of people who are led by this person named Lauren Olamina, and they have um, a belief system called Earthseed. And Earthseed's central tenets are that God is change, that people can shape God, can shape change. And then the third big tenet is the destiny of Earthseed is to take root among the stars. And it's almost like, the, like space is almost the afterlife of Earthseed. Like that's the, the destiny, the goal is to escape this dystopian planet that's a lot like our real planet we live on and get to start over somewhere new. And the end of Parable of the Talents, the second book, has this moment where Lauren Alamina is watching that destiny take shape. Like she's watching the first spaceships leave planet Earth, full of Earthseed colonists. And that moment is really fraught because, you know, she like throws in this sort of wicked ambivalence making moment where she's like the name of the ship is the Christopher Columbus
1: Oh, God. Like, that's a that type of darkness feels very satisfying to me because I feel like it sees and recognizes just something that's so present in our real lives. Like, it's like a stab. And I'm like, ah, oh, but, like, it hurts so good because you're, like, witnessing something. You're not being like, and then they all went out into the stars and it was great. It's like, nope. Right. Like, she's basically just like, we're going to leave Earth. Sure. But we're going to take all
0: of our bullshit with us. <laughs> And just like, you know, bring it with us wherever we go. And and that's something that's like, I think, a really cogent critique of science fiction, you know, that so much of science fiction is just like fancy men going forth and conquering and on their explorer missions, you know, pretending that they're not trying to interfere with anything in so in, in the best case scenarios and in other scenarios, just like straight up, you know, out here to mine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like. Fancy men in space, <laughs> just fancy men in space. Yeah, totally. So
0: it's like this subversive, like acknowledgement of colonization as an issue, and like the the way that we take those framings and that like quicksand with us, like that you're talking about, and those circular logics, and like the self that's built in the system that doesn't work comes with us on the fucking spaceship. So you know Butler's third book, Parable of the Trickster. Folks might not be as familiar with this, but she actually planned four more books after Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents that were going to be part of this Parable series. So the majority of the series was supposed to take place in the stars, like on the new planet. And Parable of the Trickster, you you can't even really say it was unfinished. It was like barely started. She only wrote the first 50 pages and she wrote them over and over again. But it was going to be set in this bright new future among the stars on the brand new planet, but it was actually going to be completely fucking bleak, like the planet's all gray, the colonists are going insane, or they're going blind, or they're like becoming uncontrollably and non-consensually psychic. Like, you know, Butler was specifically trying to confront them with a situation where they have to deal with what they brought with them. And she said that there's a speech that she gave at MIT, where she describes kind of what she was going to try to do. And um, this is a quote from it. I'm not interested in confronting them with natives. I've done that elsewhere. What I'm going to confront them with is just a nasty world. It's not violent, just nasty and dull and awful. And what they're going to have to deal with is themselves. There is no going home. Nobody will follow within their lifetimes. The real problem is dealing with themselves surviving their promised land.
1: I love that very evocative of the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's something actually that
0: the scholar Jerry Canavan compares it to too and The Dispossessed is another like great science fiction kind of central book and in that also there's like these colonists who are utopians who go and colonize a planet that's very difficult to live on. Yeah, and have to sort of survive their promised land.
1: It's so interesting that when people leave earth to take root among the stars they always end up encountering these terrible inhospitable planets <laughs> what do you think is up with that i think that for butler and and le
0: guin like there's this idea of sort of like the necessity of hard work the sort of hope that there's something in people that Only solidarity can cure something to sort of like undermine the hierarchies and hoarding and the ways in which people treat each other. And for Le Guin and and Butler in both of these novels, hardship and scarcity are tools to sort of trick people into solidarity. And I always think that's really interesting because, of course, often in survivalist fiction, scarcity is held over people's heads as like the threat of authoritarianism and the threat of hierarchy. So I think that's a little bit of a conundrum that, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get into in further episodes.
1: Yeah, it really brings to mind some of the conversations I had over this summer. In part, as a result of season one, I ended up teaching a class on Catapult about world building. And in that class, we focus on world building for the future, trying to world build and write critical utopias and think through what it means to create a story setting that is evocative of a futurist utopia and maybe a queer futurist utopia. And it's really hard to figure out which levers to pull to make those stories feel... um, What's the right word for it? I never want to say realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> 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 screw realism. That's not what we're here for. But these stories need something, right? Like, if our ideal isn't realism, maybe it's something that feels emotionally true or philosophically productive in the context of mm-hmm. a, a future utopia. I don't know. What do you think about that, Nina? Like, when you read a story like The Dispossessed or Parable of The Trickster, I guess the question is like, what do we want out of these stories?
0: I mean, what do we want from those narratives? I feel like, well, I feel like one of the things you're asking there is almost like, what do we want from utopia? Or like, how do we imagine a utopian society that feels like it has some emotional or philosophical legitimacy? And I think for Butler specifically, like her view of who human beings are. Which is in display in all of her novels, Butler's view of human nature was incredibly dark. Yeah. You know, maybe incredibly is the wrong way of describing it because actually it's like fully credible. (laughs) Like, you know, sort of fundamentally, there's this issue of authoritarianism and there's this issue of patriarchy that she sees as just fundamentally self destructive. And, you know, she sort of saw the way that human beings tend to use their intelligence to harm each other on whatever scale they could manage to reach. Whether that's like knives, fists, or nuclear bombs or climate change, she just saw that capacity as sort of like ingrained genetic, like not going anywhere. And I think for her, imagining this sort of like new society in this totally new place without a past was like a way of trying to think through whether there was any way to evolve past that. And Parable of the Trickster was going to be the beginning of like a four novel arc of watching that evolution happen over generations and generations on this planet. So like, no wonder it was hard. She was trying to solve a problem that was causing her a great deal of despair.
1: Yeah. The way you're saying that makes it sound like she was trying to imagine a set of circumstances and social interactions that would result in something other than that darkness.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about Octavia Butler – it's like, for better or worse, she did not cut herself any slack. I mean, it's sort of like those, like, I don't know if you ever do this now, but like, sometimes I'll end up down a rabbit hole with talking about like the ills of the world with my wife. And she'll be like, if I was in charge, you know, <laughs> and like, let me tell you, it gets bloody fast. Like, she is a very gentle hearted person. But the amount of murder that would immediately happen <laughs>
1: <laughs> if I was
0: in charge <laughs> it's like pretty devastating and wild, <laughs> like yeah. And I feel like Butler is sort of giving herself that task that yeah. often, like you know, in our in our, in moments where we're trying to imagine this future that we want and what it would take, like what it would take for human beings to change. I I think you know that sort of tug with this like very dark set of solutions or set of like foreseeable solutions. What's possible to imagine, whether like it's magical or not. Butler never imagined that her stuff would just like work. She had a really hard time imagining something that could change things. And that included her own like affirmations and her own sort of best ideas. And even like when she imagined herself as sort of in charge. Yeah. Which I guess any novelist writing this kind of a utopian fantasy like has this opportunity to play God. And she was like, even as God, I don't know how to fix this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, that's, I mean, she's in this situation of being drastically underappreciated for the intellectual work she's done, you know, writing from that place, it would feel pretty hard, I imagine, to envision a world that transcends that when it's the reality that you live in every day. If you're constantly feeling the darkness in the real life that you're living, and then you're trying to simultaneously like escape into a world that you've created where that darkness has somehow been solved or transformed, I don't know. It's it's not really an escape because I think you bring into your fantasy and your world building and your noveling all of the problems and frustrations and roadblocks that Limit your
0: life, you know, working with Earth, working with human beings on Earth, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's where we're beginning is with the like ambivalence around what escape means and like, you know, like is escape just a delaying tactic because of everything that we bring with us into it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that honestly really brings it back to Latigra and Kathleen Hanna and so much of what you were talking about, Nat, earlier in the episode for me. Because there's this sort of queer life version of like taking your bullshit into space. That's something that Kathleen Hanna talks a lot about. Um, She talks a lot about what it's like to be a badass feminist punk rock star who has This like whole childhood of memories of abuse. And like in in this one particular Rolling Stone interview, she talks about being an adult who grew up in an abusive household and uh, with a fucked up abusive dad. And she says, quote, I have to look in the mirror every day and see my dad's fucking eyebrows and be like, am I going to be an abuser? Am I going to abuse children? And I know the answer to that. Because I'm constantly soul-searching and working on myself to be a better person. And I'm so hypervigilant about being abusive to friends or kids. And I'm so terrified of that. Why do I have to look in the mirror and see my abuser and not look in the mirror and see me?
1: I love the way she says that. It's, I don't know, it's just perfect. I mean, I think when you ask that question and you ask it publicly, yeah, it. Let's other people know that they're not the only ones who have that question in mind.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it also relates in a lot of ways to being like a person who wants a different system than white supremacy, too. Like it's also the sort of, you know, trauma of colonization and settlement and wanting to do something else, you know, like, and how do you do that when you look in the mirror and you see? The face of your own abuser, the abuser of others, yep. staring back at you. And just like, you know, so I think that's part of it. And and I feel like Parable of the Trickster and La Tigra are really talking to each other across this moment of like, why do we have to see this in the mirror? How the fuck do we get out of that? And also, like, if that's our face, like you can't just escape from your face, you know, like so <laughs> your face is your face. So, like, that's what this season is gonna be about you know i think is the ways that we imagine escaping like how we grapple with the shit we bring along like like the fact that your face is your face <laughs> you know, like.
1: well there is various science fiction and speculative about having a different face that is so we- true <laughs> <laughs> yeah so let's get into some nick cage john travolta action This has been Queers at the End of the World.
0: Next time on Queers at the End of the World, join us for an interview with Adam Garnett-Jones, filmmaker, beadworker, and author, about all the many kinds of art he makes and what it means to make a home on planet Earth.
1: Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Aricots by Tintamare.
0: The show is produced and edited by me, Nina budavon McLeod, with marketing and
1: technical wizardry by
0: Nat Messenhard.
1: Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts.